0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 36, The Unsolved Murder of Sybil Zanner. Before I get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our newest Patreon supporters, Joanne, and the mysteriously named November Whiskey 2. Also, a huge thank you to an existing Patreon, Louise Tinney, who increased her pledge. The show has also received two donations through PayPal this week, from Ilka Zent-Kilrali and Nadia Hudson. Thank you so much to everyone who's donated towards the show. It really is greatly appreciated. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. When I started looking into this case, I didn't actually realise that it remained unsolved, or well, perhaps a better word would be unresolved. My predominant resources in this case include the book by Handley Retief about supercop Pete Bailafelt, called Bailafelt, Dossier of a Super Sleuth. I also used a document I found on Safley. Which involved an appeal lodged by the accused in this case. The murder was described by a police spokesperson as one of the strangest cases the SAPS has worked on in a long time. The oddity of this case came from a few different factors. The weapon used in the murder was unusual, and there seemed to be absolutely no motive this case would go through two different investigating officers and eventually result in an arrest and trial. While on trial, the accused in this case would have his past come back to haunt him in the worst way possible. Although this case is in the public domain, I think that it's important for me to note that no one has ever actually been found guilty of this murder and any information I supply in this episode is not intended as an accusation of guilt against any single person. As with all unsolved cases, my purpose is twofold. Be a voice for the victim in telling her story, and also attempt to create awareness so that if there is someone out there who has evidence that can bring resolution to this case, Perhaps their conscience may be triggered. So let's get into episode thirty-six, the unsolved murder of Sybil Zanna. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services. Please see the helpline information on our show notes. Sibyl Zanna was born Sybil Brigg in Germany. There is little to no information available about Sibyl's family, but what we do know about her as a person comes from a lady called Frauke Stribel. Frauke and Sibyl had been firm friends from the late 1980s, and she describes Sibyl as being beautiful intelligent and vivacious. She says that everyone loved Sybil because of her kind and fun nature. Sadly, we now know that there was at least one person in the world who did not love Sybil. Frauke and Sybil met while on a ski trip in Europe. The trip had been arranged by the son of a family who'd been friends with the Stribles for many years. The Zanners. the Strabels and the Zanners were both families of German origin who'd moved to South Africa when their children were young to build lives here. Frauke Stribel and the Zanners' children, Frank and Karina, would travel between Europe and South Africa often at the time of the arranged ski trip. Frank Zanner, who was in his mid-twenties, was living in Germany. Fraker recalled meeting Sybil on the trip, and relayed how, although everyone there was mostly meeting her for the first time, she was soon welcomed into the circle thanks to her humour and lovely nature. Sybil's stunning appearance, of course, did not hurt, and at 24 years old, she was tall, long-legged and tan, with a cascade of honey-coloured hair. Fraka would soon discover that Frank Zanner had very intentionally invited Sybil on this trip, though. He'd recently broken up with his girlfriend, and Sybil had been an acquaintance of that girlfriend. Frank had apparently had his eye on her for some time, and hoped to use the ski trip as an opportunity to get to know her. The ploy worked, in Frank's favour, because the pair started dating on that trip. The Stribal family describes the Zanners as having lived a life of luxury for a long time. Frank's father had built a business in South Africa called S.A. Lenius, which built and supplied furniture and other carpentry items. The intention was for Frank to take over from his father in running the business, but the Stribals say that the young man seemed to have very little interest in doing so. Frank, they said, reveled in a life of luxury, and he was quite happy to spend his days in the European sun, on a yacht, sipping champagne. When Frank met Sybil, though, he seemed to see in her the promise of a more stable future, as within weeks of them officially starting to date, he brought the beautiful blonde to South Africa to meet his parents, as well as the Stribles, Birgitte Stribel, Fraka's mother, remembers telling Frank that Sibyl was definitely marriage material. The Stribel family would grow to love Sibyl like their own daughter, and they would play a pivotal role in this case. Frank seemed to heed Birgitte's advice, because on the way back to Germany, he proposed to Sibyl, who accepted. The couple would have two weddings, one in Germany, and then after deciding to settle in South Africa and moving here, they'd had another wedding in Johannesburg, which was attended by the most prominent members of the German community in South Africa. Frank and Sibyl initially lived with Frank's parents, and then bought their own house in Waterford Estate in Witkopen. Frank started to work at his father's company, and Sybil got a job as a secretary to the CEO at a company called Steinmiller. They'd been trying to conceive for several years, when eventually, in 1993, Sybil gave birth to a baby girl they named Bianca. The baby was sadly born with several health issues, and only lived for three weeks. Brigitte Stribel remembers feeling as though Sybil had resigned herself to the fact that she would not have children, possibly unwilling to risk experiencing the pain of such tremendous loss again. Frank, though, was not convinced that this was their fate, and in 2000, he broached the possibility of adoption with Sybil. He'd become aware of a pair of newborn twin boys, who were up for adoption, and he wanted to adopt the children. Sybil initially felt that two babies would be too much for her to handle, but Frank was convincing, and she eventually agreed. I find this situation a little odd, if I'm honest. And I can only assume that this must have been a private adoption, because it's just strange to me that Frank became aware of these children if he and Sibyl had not already discussed the possibility or registered for the process. I can only think that the availability of these boys had become known to Frank through the grapevine, so to speak. This stage in Frank and Sibyl Zanners' life would take on an even stranger overture later in this case. Either way, two baby boys were adopted by the Zanners, in 2000. I will not mention their names to allow them to maintain their anonymity, as I don't believe in outing the children of accused people or victims. The Stribel family says that despite Sybil's initial misgivings about whether she'd be able to handle two babies, she was a fantastic mother, and soon settled into the new routine of caring for her boys. There can be no doubt that the dynamic of most relationships change when a couple has children. For some the change is negative and they never quite bridge the gap between life as a married couple and life as parents. The Striebel family spent a significant amount of time around the Zanners and they noticed that after the boys came along Frank began to behave rather strangely. He seemed very distracted And would fall asleep while in company this despite the fact that sybil was the primary caregiver for the twins sybil was an intensely private person and didn't discuss any problems that were happening in their marriage at first she too had realized that something had changed within their relationship but couldn't quite put her finger on what in may 2002 when their babies were just two years old, Sybil would be faced with the shocking truth. Frank took her out to dinner and confessed that not only had he been having an affair for three years, but he also had a child with the other woman. For three years, Frank had been living a double life with a colleague called Susanna. In 2000, when Frank had convinced Sybil to adopt the twins, Susanna had been pregnant with his child, a daughter who was born soon after. I cannot imagine what must have gone through Sybil's head when she was told this. It's bad enough to find out that your partner is cheating on you, but to find out that it's been going on for so long and that a child has been born out of that relationship must have been utterly devastating. No doubt, Sybil must have also felt a stab of pain at the thought that her own baby girl had died, and yet, Frank was able to have a child with someone else. I realise that it's rather pointless to try and figure out what could have been going through someone else's head when they made decisions that they did, but I cannot fathom why on earth someone would convince their wife to adopt twin boys when their girlfriend is pregnant with a child and they're clearly not committed to their marriage. Was it a cover-up? Was Frank worried that in visiting his baby daughter, he might unwittingly bring home clues and those clues could be explicable if there were babies at home as well? One would think that If he intended to leave Sybil to be with Susanna, adopting children would be the last thing you'd want to do. When I found out why Frank actually told Sybil that night, though, it seemed to make a little more sense. Frank didn't tell Sybil because his conscience was bothering him or because he was trying to divorce her. He told her because someone else forced his hand. You see and this is just my humble opinion. I think that Frank fully intended to live both his lives for as long as he could. I think that Frank didn't think he had to choose. He wanted both. He wanted Susanna and his baby girl, and he also wanted Sybil and his twin boys. Each life would likely have given him different things. With Sybil, he was his father's heir, a family man with a beautiful, intelligent wife. With Susanna, he was just Frank. He had a biological child with her, and no other legal ties. Unfortunately for Frank, someone had not liked the fact that he was living his double life, and they intended to put an end to it. That someone was Susanna's landlord. Susanna lived in a cottage on the property of another couple. For three years, the landlord had watched Frank visit Susanna in the early hours of the morning and late at night. They'd grown fond of Susanna, and she'd confessed that her boyfriend was married. The landlord would later say that the couple's relationship had been extremely volatile, and he'd become so tired of hearing their rip-roaring fights at strange hours of the morning and night that he'd laid down an ultimatum in front of Frank. Leave Susanna alone, or I will tell your wife. Frank realised that his cover was about to be blown, and it was this, and not his conscience, that had caused him to confess to his affair. Three days after Frank's confession dinner, the landlord followed through with his threats after seeing Frank on his property again, and he visited Sybil at work. She told him that she already knew. The Strible family recalled Sybil sharing this devastating news with them. She'd insisted that Frank should confess to their good friends, but he'd dodged the deed and left it to her. They'd asked Sybil if she was planning on divorcing Frank, and she told them her boys were only two years old, and she didn't want them to have to deal with the divorce and separation. There was another reason Sybil very likely thought twice about divorcing Frank, and that was financial. It seemed that supporting two families had become rather expensive, and Frank was not doing well financially. His father's company was struggling and he'd liquidated parts of the factory. Frank had taken an additional loan on his house bond to access cash. Whether Sybil had been aware of this or not is not known, but she certainly knew that their financial situation was precarious at best. To her credit, Sybil handled the revelation of her husband having another child surprisingly well and I think it's a testament to her strength and maturity that she encouraged Frank to have the child visit their house at weekends. She even set up a separate bedroom for the little girl and was thinking about buying a bigger car that could accommodate a third child. My heart aches for this woman. It would have been so easy for her to hate the child of her husband's infidelity, sight unseen, but she didn't. She understood that the little girl needed her father as much as her own two boys did, and so she sacrificed her own pride and told Frank that while she wanted him to immediately end the relationship with Susanna, his daughter with her should be as much a part of their lives as possible. Whether Frank did or did not end his relationship with Susanna is in question, but he had survived the revelation of his infidelity practically unscathed. His financial situation, though, was not getting any better, it seemed. Sybil enjoyed spending time with the Stribles, and they had a standing arrangement each week that she would go to their house in the evening and they would drink wine and work on craft projects. On the 25th of September 2002, they had arranged a visit for that evening. Sybil went home after work and settled her boys in, leaving them in the care of the living domestic worker, as Frank was not yet home. She made dinner and left Frank's plates in the microwave for him to warm up as soon as he got home, which was his habit every night. At eleven minutes past seven, Sybil kissed her boys goodnight and used her access card to exit Waterford Estate. The time of her exit was recorded. The Stribles lived in Marble Crescent, Rydapuert. Looking at the house on Google Street View, it's a quiet suburban street, and one of those that you wouldn't tend to stumble upon unless you'd intended to. The Stribles' house is not level with the road. Their driveway slopes down to the house, and if you're standing at street level, you're looking at the top of their roof. This would make it impossible for them to see anything going on in the street unless they walked up their driveway and stood at their gate. Harold and Burgit Stribal were expecting Sybil at around 7.30. Harold recalled hearing dogs barking in the street, and he thought it would be Sybil but the doorbell didn't ring. Close to eight o'clock, Harold heard a neighbour calling to him from his gate. They told him that he should come and look, because something wasn't right. Running out onto the street, Harold found Sybil laying in the road. She was about three metres from her car, and on her back, with her arms outstretched. Her handbag Car keys and pieces of a wooden puzzle she'd planned to work on with the couple lay strewn about around her. As Harold touched Sybil in an attempt to rouse her, thinking that she may have fainted, he felt something protruding from the back of her head. A crossbow dart had entered behind her right ear, severed her first and second vertebrae, and then began to exit out the other side, where it had remained lodged. Sybil had been instantly paralysed. Paramedics managed to restore her heartbeat, and rushed her to hospital. The Stribals alerted Frank, and they all rushed to the hospital to await news. In a strange twist of fate, later that night... Frank would retreat to the hospital parking lot to have a cigarette. Another man stood beside him, also smoking, also waiting for news of his own wife's condition. In the ICU, Sybil Zanna lay fighting for her life, and in the cubicle beside her lay Esme Bailerfeldt, wife of Top Cop, Pete Bailerfeldt. As the men stood smoking side by side that night, they could have no idea that within a short space of time one of them would be a widower and the other would be trying to prove that he'd killed his wife. In the hospital that night, doctors informed Frank and the Stribles that there was very little that they could do for Sybil they would very likely need to switch off the life support machines the next morning. On hearing this, Frank was overcome and turned away from the others, throwing his car keys into the corner of the room in frustration. The Stribles went home with Frank that night to help care for the twins. Brigitte offered him sugar water to help for the shock, and Frank told her that he hadn't eaten yet. She remembers finding this strange, as she knew Sybil would have left dinner for Frank, as she always did, and she also knew that Frank always ate his dinner as soon as he got home. The next morning, Brigitte recalls being confused again, upon finding Frank getting ready to go to work. She'd gently reminded him that they needed to go to the hospital, as they'd be saying goodbye to Sybil that day. Frank said he'd be there. At nine o'clock that morning, 14 hours after Sybil had been found laying in the street, the life support machines keeping her alive were switched off, and she passed away. The crossbow arrow still lodged in her skull. Her death was now a murder investigation. The initial investigative work done at the scene of Sybil's murder was almost non-existent. There had been no photographer available, so the scene was not photographed at all. Sybil's belongings that had laid strewn about after the attack were not bagged as evidence. They were picked up with bare hands and thrown into Sybil's car. Witnesses were not properly interviewed directly after the incident, and some would only have statements taken weeks after the event. A set of car tyre prints was found behind Sybil's vehicle, and a plaster impression was taken. The tyres were believed to belong to a 4x4 vehicle, but the evidence led the investigating officer no further than that. From the position of Sybil's body, Investigators were able to determine that she had gotten out of her car and started walking towards the Stribal house. Something had then caught her attention, and she walked toward where the other vehicle was parked. Investigators took this to mean that she had likely known her attacker, as she had approached him or her. The attacker grabbed her arm leaving behind a bruise which was found in the autopsy. It was likely at this point that the crossbow was placed against her head and the arrow was released. Initially investigators wondered if the arrow could have been inserted into Sibyl's head manually, but it would soon prove that the force required to do this would have been enormous and it was far more likely that she was shot with a crossbow. The force with which the arrow entered Sybil's head was so great in fact that strands of her hair were found inside her skull at autopsy. At Sybil's funeral, the church was overflowing with mourners. Harold Stribel recalls Frank handing him a letter in an envelope which he asked Harold to place on top of Sybil's coffin. Frank sat in the front row, sobbing uncontrollably, as did many of those who'd loved the vivacious woman. Police spokesperson Captain Paula Notnachel told the media that Sybil's murder was one of the strangest they had dealt with in a long time. There seemed to be no motive. Sybil was not robbed. Everything was still in her handbag down to her purse, which had money in it. Notnagel stated that Although it was possible that this was an assassination, they were stumped as to who would want Sybil, a very normal mother of two, dead. Frank concurred, telling the media that his wife had no enemies, and he couldn't fathom who would want to harm her. The investigation ticked along slowly, and then almost completely fizzled out. It was at this point that police superiors decided that the case needed to be moved to another investigator, and Pete Balefeldt was given the docket. As is important in any case, Balefeldt said that he always started his investigations with the victimology. Understanding the victim is key to understanding the crime, and so he went about getting to know Sybil Zanner, His first stop, an interview with the Stribles, proved fruitful, and the couple gave him a really good description of who Sybil was. They also relayed all of the information about what she'd been dealing with in the last few months in her marriage. Brigitte Stribel said that Sybil had been unusually quiet in the week before her murder. Bailefeldt's next stop was Sybil's place of work where her colleagues described her in glowing terms. A colleague that worked in the same office as Sybil had told Bailefeld that Sybil received a telephone call on the day of her murder. He explained that Sybil was a very even-tempered person, and she never brought her personal issues to work. But on that day, she'd seemed extremely disturbed by a phone call. Around noon, he said, she'd had a heated argument with the person on the phone. He couldn't hear what she was saying, but was certain that she'd said the name Frank. The man had become concerned and approached Stubble to see if she was okay, and she'd switched from speaking English to speaking German. When she put the phone down, he says that she'd exclaimed, men, in a half-joking way, which he took to be hiding her true distress. She then picked up her handbag and left the building. That was the last time he'd ever seen her. Bailafelt looked into every inch of Sybil's life, certain that if she was up to something that could have led to her assassination, he would find it. He found nothing. Sybil was exactly who she appeared to be but others in her life were not so transparent. Baila felt recalled that the daughter of one of his colleagues lived in the same street as the Stribles. When speaking to the young woman, she said that she had indeed seen something strange on the night of the murder. She'd been driving home from the grocery store when, in her street, she had to move out the way to avoid a white 4x4 vehicle that was driving in the middle of the road. Bailerfeld also discovered that there was a life insurance policy in place for Sybil, as well as a significant pension fund, which would pay out to her husband, should she die. Having learned as much about the victim as he could, Bailerfeld then switched tacks to possible suspects. As is normal in any murder, the people closest to the victim must be ruled out first, and so this is where he started. Bailafeld contacted the first investigating officer on the case and asked her opinion on those closest to Sybil. In her opinion, the investigating officer said, all of the people in Sybil's close circle were innocent, including her husband Frank. Bailafeld recalled finding this strange as, as far as he could see, nowhere near enough investigative work had been done to prove anyone's guilt or innocence at that point. Although Sybil had seemed to have accepted her husband's infidelity, this was of course a major red flag to Bailafelt, so he began to focus on Frank Zanner. Frank said that he'd left work at 7pm on the night of Sybil's murder, which was normal for him. The trip home had taken him 40 minutes, he alleged, and he'd arrived home at 20 to 8, where he'd remained until he received the call about Sybil from the Strabels. When Bailafeld visited the Zanna home, he noticed that the residents had key cards to get in and out of the security estate. He put a request in for the records from the access system for the day of Sybil's murder. Records showed that Frank Zanna had not entered the premises at 20 to 8 that night but rather at 6 minutes to 8. Bailiffeld then arranged some reconstructions to see if timelines could be proven. He and a colleague first drove from Frank Zanner's place of employment to his home. They completed the trip in 35 minutes. They then drove the route from the Waterford estate to the Stribal's home, leaving at 11 minutes past 7, as the access equipment indicated Sybil had. They stuck to the speed limit, as they believed she would have, and they arrived at the Stribal home at 31 minutes past 7. With that timeline proven, they then drove back to Waterford Estate, speeding slightly, as they believed a person who just committed a murder might... And they arrived back at the estate at 52 minutes past seven. Lastly, Bailiffelt drove from Frank's place of work to the Stribal House and then back to Waterford Estate. The trip lasted exactly 54 minutes. The Zanners live in domestic worker, when interviewed, said that she knew that Frank had walked in the door around 8 pm because her favourite soapy had just started one of Frank's neighbours, recalled that a few days after the murder, Frank had come to him and attempted to remind him of a conversation they'd had the night of Sybil's murder and how the neighbour had seen him arrive home. The neighbour found this very strange because he hadn't seen Frank that night and he hadn't had any conversations with him either. As part of the investigation, Other people were considered as suspects too. Frank's ex-brother-in-law, Eddie Bezadenhout, was looked at for a time. He had a checkered past and was not on good terms with the Zanna family at the time of Sybil's murder. Eddie had an alibi and he passed the polygraph test, but he did have an interesting piece of information for Bailafelt. Eddie claimed that about a year before Sybil's murder, He had sold Frank Zanner a crossbow and three darts. When shown a photo of the dart that had been in Sybil's head, he said it didn't match the ones he'd sold Frank. Frank Zanner denied ever having purchased a crossbow from Eddie, and no crossbow was ever found in his possession. Frank Zanner took a polygraph and failed. Within days of taking over the investigation, Bailafelt had contacted both the life insurance company and the pension fund and advised them that they should not release any funds to Frank Zanner until the investigation was concluded. The payroll administrator at Sybil's work had told Bailafelt that Zana had been in contact with her two days after Sybil's death to inquire about the pension fund payout. Frank Zanna attempted to take legal action in order to have the money released, saying that he and his boys were struggling financially without Sybil's income. This seems strange to me. Sybil worked as a secretary, and while for most families two incomes are necessary regardless of the amount, she wouldn't have been earning a huge amount of money. Frank, as the MD of a company, would very likely be earning much more. So why would Sybil's income have been such a loss to him that he would be attempting to secure her pension payout within two days of her murder? Balefeld thought that there was a large amount of evidence to point to the fact that Frank Zanna had been involved in his wife's murder. Another person who had to be considered a suspect was Zanna's girlfriend. Susanna. She certainly had something to gain from Sybil's death, and so felt investigated that lead as far as it would go. As the heat increased on Zanna, though, felt received a tip-off that Susanna was about to flee the country. He had been contacted by someone she worked with, and so he snuck into the building and surprised her in her office as she was packing up. The woman burst into tears at the sight of him. She explained that she'd realised that all of the evidence was starting to point to Frank as having been involved in his wife's murder, and she now feared for her own life. She said that Frank had threatened her if she kept his daughter from him, and even offered to pay her a large amount of money to sign custody of the child over to him. She gave Bailerfeld contact details of where she could be reached and agreed that if she was ever required to testify in the future, she would return to South Africa to do so. Susanna then took her daughter and left South Africa. She has never returned. Frank Zanna attempted to get her contact information from her ex-landlord, who did indeed have forwarding information for her, the landlord refused to provide Frank with any information, as they were afraid for Susanna's safety. Four months after Sybil's death, Frank was dating again. He would go on two dinner dates with a woman who later described his behaviour around Sybil's passing as strangely unemotional. She said that he described his wife as a good cook and someone that many people liked and that was the grand total of what he had to say about Sybil. Granted, I don't know that you would launch into a grand description of your deceased wife when you're on a date with someone, but I also don't know that you would be dating someone four months after your wife of almost 20 years has passed away either. But everyone grieves differently. Realising that he was now the main suspect in his wife's murder, the Zena family hired a private investigator to prove Frank's alibi. Bailafelt would later say that the investigator had contacted him and mysteriously told him to check the CCTV camera at the Zena's factory. The PI The PI had then retracted his services from the case. When Bailerfeld went to retrieve the CCTV footage the next day, it was missing and has never been recovered. Frank's place of work did hold some more information, though, and soon a shocking discovery would be made that would only add to the confusion in this case. Bailerfeld discovered that this was not the first time that Frank Zanner had been the subject of a death investigation. In 1992, Frank Zanner was investigated when one of his employees at SA Lanishes died after having a vernier penetrates his skull. The man, 50-year-old Samuel Shegazzo, had been standing in the same room as Zanner when it's alleged that Zanner threw a vernier at another employee and instead of hitting that man, it had hit Samuel. Samuel had passed away in hospital a few days later. A for those of you who don't know, is a piece of equipment used for measuring very precise scales. It is often used in manufacturing settings to gauge the thickness of substrates. The tool is made of metal and looks like a ruler, with a fixed jaw in front, and then a second jaw that moves up and down the tool. When the two jaws are fixed in place, the tool has the shape of a small axe. None of the points on the tool are terribly sharp, though, so in order for it to lodge into someone's skull, it would have to be thrown with considerable force. A witness in the matter said that Frank had been trying to get the attention of another employee. When he called the man three times without response, he'd lost his temper and thrown the vernier in the man's direction. When it struck Samuel, Frank had rushed over and caught the man before he hit the ground. He pulled the tool out of the man's skull. At the time of Samuel's death, an investigation was launched and the original investigating officer, told Bailafelt that he felt like he was being given the runaround by witnesses and employees at the company. Although culpable homicide charges were pending against Zanner at the time, the investigating officer could not gather enough evidence to raise a case against him, and it never went to court. Bailerfeld believed that justice was not served for Samuel Schechitzel. On the 28th of August 2003, almost a year after Sybil's murder, Frank Zanner was arrested as he left Waterford Estate. Bailerfeld made as much of a show of force as possible, with blue lights, sirens and guns drawn. Zanna's only comment upon being told that he was being arrested for the murder of his wife was to ask whether it was really necessary to arrest him in such a way. Bailer recalled that Zanner came across as not only really relaxed after his arrest, but almost arrogant. He lounged back in a chair in the interview room at the police station, with his hands behind his head, and asked for his lawyer. He then proceeded to answer every question that Bailafelt asked him, with, I will consult on that. Zanna was held in jail for several months, until he was eventually granted bail. By early 2004, Belafeld had gathered enough evidence to charge Zanna with the murder of Samuel Schachetzo. Zanna responded by appealing against the charging court, saying that his right to a speedy trial in the case of Samuel's murder had been violated. The court found that no such right had been violated, as Zanna had not been investigated or involved in any legal proceedings for the last 13 years. The case against him had simply not proceeded at the time, and now it was. On the 26th of July 2004, the trial against Frank Zanner began both charges of murder would be heard in the same trial and by the same judge. The state started with the charge relating to the murder of Samuel Shichetsu. The defence alleged that Zanna had not purposely thrown the vernier, but rather that his hands had been oily and the tool had slipped out of his hand while he was talking animatedly. Although Bailafelt had done his best to ensure that the witnesses were prepared, the wheels fell off the case pretty quickly. The original investigating officer had difficulty remembering exactly what had been said and done 13 years before, when cross-examined. The original docket had also disappeared, with all of the notes he'd made. Many of the witnesses that Bailafelt had arranged simply didn't arrive to testify, and the ones that did were suddenly uncertain about their evidence. It emerged during the trial that after Zanna had caught Samuel while he was collapsing and pulled the vernier out of his head, he had then hosed the man down with water. This is a bit weird in my opinion unless he was trying to get rid of the blood in order to ascertain the severity of the injury, why would you hose someone down? And if there's so much blood present to necessitate you hosing him down, surely that is already a sign that the injury is pretty severe? The section of the trial for the murder of Samuel Schechetzel ended on a very poor foot, and things did not get much better. When the focus shifted to the murder of Sybil. In that portion of the trial, Bailefeld suddenly found that his witnesses were equally uncertain, and the defense counsel managed to cast doubt on much of their testimony. Eddie Bizadenhurst, who would testify that he'd sold Zanna a crossbow, had all of the skeletons pulled out of his closet. His credibility was severely damaged under cross-examination. The young woman who'd seen the white 4x4 in the street that night was now not entirely certain whether it was the same vehicle that Zena drove. The Zena's domestic worker claimed that Bailafelt had told her what to write in her statement and that she actually didn't know what time Zena had come home that night. The neighbour was now unsure as to whether he had or hadn't spoken to Zanna that night. The evidence from the access equipment at the estate was also called into question, and Bailafeld brought in the engineers who had installed the equipment to testify to its accuracy. They too crumbled under cross-examination. The writing was on the wall for this case. And rather than face an acquittal, which would mean they could never again try Zanna for the murder of Sybil, in August 2006, the charge was withdrawn. Shortly thereafter, the judge acquitted Frank Zanna on the charge of murdering Samuel Shachetso, saying that there was simply not sufficient evidence to prove intent. Frank Zanna walked out of the court a free man. Pete Balevald said that this case was one of the few that haunted him. He felt that despite his best efforts, he'd failed Sybil. Sybil's pension fund refused to pay out to Zanna, despite the charges being withdrawn, and instead they placed the money in a trust fund, which would pay out directly to her sons when they came of age. Zanna attempted to fight this in court, but the pension fund stood by its decision, and the money remains in trust for her sons. In 2010, Frank Zanner sued the state and Pitt-Balafelt for general damages, for harm to his reputation and rights, and for harming his honour and dignity, in the amount of 8.5 million rand. There is no further reporting in the media on this matter, so it may have been successfully disputed, or a settlement may have been reached. Frank Zanner appears to have moved back overseas with his boys, who are now young men of 20 years old. As at the time of the publication of Balefeldt's book, which was in 2011, the Stribels were still living in the house outside which Sybil had been murdered. I viewed the house on Google Street View before I read the book and I was trying to figure out where Sybil's body had fallen by using the reconstruction photographs. It was difficult as the road looked quite different at the time. But then, in reading the Stiebel's account of the case, they mentioned that they had planted a memorial garden for Sybil on the pavement outside their house parallel to the spot where she'd been found. So I looked again, and there it was, a splash of colour in an otherwise ordinary street, red and white flowers circled by small stones that mark the spot and encircle the memory. It is here that Sibyl's Zanna was betrayed. Because she was betrayed whether or not it was by Frank Zanner. A crossbow is a very specific weapon, and it's not used in murders very often. It's silent, and when well-aimed, deadly. You also don't have to have a license to own one, so it makes for an easy, untraceable method of killing. An article published in the International Journal of Legal Medicine in December 2004 looked at a study of eight different cases of crossbow homicides, rather ironically, in Germany. In all of the cases, the weapon was chosen because it was silent, easy to transport, and required almost no skill to use. In almost all the cases covered in that study, the murder was committed by an intimate partner on both male and female victims. There is no doubt that Sybil Anna was not a victim of a random crime that day. She was not robbed or hijacked. Not a single item was stolen. It is also rather clear that she knew her killer, as she willingly approached them, and they were able to get so close to her without her calling for help that the crossbow was almost up against her head when it was fired. Did she approach the person and then see the crossbow in their hand, try to run, and that was when the perpetrator grabbed her arm, leaving the bruise, and simultaneously shot her? The other reason that we can say that Sybil knew her killer was because they knew that she was going to be at the Strabels' house that night. They knew exactly what time she was going to be arriving. Were they following her? Or didn't they need to, because they knew exactly where to go? Is it really possible for Frank to have achieved arriving at the exact right time at the house to commit the murder if he left work at seven? The reconstruction that Bailafeld did shows that he had enough time to drive there from work, kill her and drive home in the allocated time. But what if the access equipment was wrong, and he did arrive earlier? Also, what would Bailerfeldt have found on the CCTV from the factory? Would it have proved his alibi, or would it have shown that he left at a different time from what he said? Frank Zanna was not acquitted of the charge of murdering Sybil. So that does leave it open for new charges in the future but it would take a significant amount of evidence, or a confession, for that to happen. Bailafeld seemed to have built a pretty decent case, and the evidence all seemed to point in one direction. But then it fell apart. Why that happened, we don't know. I'm sure it's not uncommon for one witness to falter, but almost all of them, in two separate cases, must be an anomaly. At the end of the day, there's no physical evidence tying Frank Zanna to this murder. They found no blood, no weapon, and no proof that he was anywhere other than where he said he was. His history and financial predicaments are dodgy at best, and seem to match a lot of what we see in other cases of domestic homicide. But it's not what we think we know. It's about what we can prove. And South Africa was unable to prove that Frank Zanna killed his wife. And what about Samuel Shachetso? For 13 years, his case lay untouched. And then when it finally had its day in court, the witnesses faltered there too. In my humble opinion... It is highly unlikely that the vernier slipped out of Frank's hand, but I don't think that he intended to kill Samuel. The state had to prove that he threw the vernier with intent to hit someone, and that in doing so, he should have known that someone could be injured. Unfortunately, the state failed to prove that too. I don't think that the prosecution or Pitt Bailerfeld did a poor job here, It's just really strange that all the witnesses in two cases would suddenly falter under cross examination. I guess that must be a testament to Zanna's defense counsel. Maybe. Samuel Shachetso was a 50 year old man. He was a father and a husband, and he was at work just trying to earn a living. He didn't deserve what happened to him, whether it was an accident or not. And I do hope that his family have some sense of peace around his passing, despite the fact that it was never fully explained. Sybil Zanna also did not deserve what happened to her. She had to deal with so much pain in the run-up to her murder, but she kept her eyes focused On the well-being of her boys. They were just two years old when she was murdered and will likely have very few, if any, memories of her. She was going to paint a wooden puzzle for them that night with the Stribals. After she was attacked the pieces of that puzzle lay scattered about. The physical pieces may have been collected But the pieces of another puzzle that she left for us stayed behind, scattered about across continents and in memories and consciences, just waiting for the moment when they'll eventually be put back together and the real picture will emerge. for listening to episode 36 The Unsolved Murder of Sybil Zanna. If you enjoyed this episode please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app that you're using to listen right now You can also follow us on social media We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram I'll be back next Friday with a very interesting interview If you are interested in what makes the human brain tick I highly recommend that you catch that episode Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.